our guest is Dan Willingham. Dan Willingham is professor of psychology at the University of Virginia. His research and writing concern the application of cognitive psychology to K-12 education. He's written widely on the topic, including his books, Why Don't Students Like School? When Can You Trust the Experts? How to Tell Good Science from Bad in Education? And Raising Kids Who Read, What Parents and Teachers Can Do. Along with that, he's written a plethora of articles and blog posts. So, Dan, tell us um, and our audience a little bit about what cognitive psychology is, what it is you do. Cognitive psychology is the study of the human mind. Our goal is to explain what people do, and part of that is how people think. That's mostly what we focus on is how people think, but we're also interested in how those thoughts end up being expressed in actions, actions like reading, being able to solve problems, and so forth. And the way that we're different than brain scientists is probably easiest to appreciate with an analogy that's very often used in this context, which is the difference in computers between hardware and software. So brain scientists are sort of studying the physical brain, how it operates. Psychologists are interested in the software, and you, re you can really separate those two problems. So you can describe what a computer program is doing in sort of abstract terms without getting at exactly uh, what the electronics inside the machine are doing. And indeed, the same software, as you know, because you've got a very strong computer background, the same software program might be on different computer platforms, and the guts of the computer might be doing relatively different things, even though conceptually the software is doing exactly the same thing. Yep. And so how and why did you begin to apply cognitive science to K-12 education? That's a much more random and odd tale. So I, I had no interest in education at all during my training. And I trained as a basic scientist who studied. I was actually sort of at the intersection of mind and brain. And so I was trying to use neuroscientific methods to inform. I was trying to study the hardware to, to get at how the software operates. And got my PhD in 1990 and uh, continued just doing basic research. And I was focused on learning and memory. And then met Don Hirsch of cultural literacy fame uh, because he was working on a new book. He lives in the same town I do, Charlottesville. And he was writing a new book about schooling, and he's very much taken with cognitive psychology. So he wanted to ask me some questions about cognitive psychology. That was in 1996. I, I had a couple conversations with him, completely forgot about it. And then he contacted me a couple of years later I think about 1999, and asked if I would be willing to speak at the National Conference of the Core Knowledge Foundation, and I, which is an education conference. And I said, I don't know anything about education. I'm a cognitive psychologist. He said, perfect. That's what we want. We want you to come and talk about cognitive psychology. We'll figure out what it might mean for education. Uh, so I said, okay. I didn't have anything else to do that weekend, I guess. So I, <laughs> I went to Nashville, I think it was. Um, and gave this talk, and then in the audience happened to be the editor of American Educator at that time, a woman named Ruth Wattenberg. And she said, this was kind of interesting. Maybe would you consider doing some writing for uh, American Educator about cognitive psychology and what it might mean for education? So I said, okay, it, it was sort of a foolhardy moment, and published my first article in American Educator in 2002 and just got more and more interested as I went along. The main reason I got interested was that I, I felt like cognitive psychology, there, there, we do know some things about how 
people think, how people remember, solve problems, and all this stuff. And it's certainly not the you know the main thing in education, but it's part of the puzzle. And I, I think it can make a contribution. And the thing that was most surprising to me is that most teachers didn't seem to know about this stuff. Stuff that I was teaching college sophomores and like the introductory cognitive psychology course, sort of the ABCs of how memory works. I was running to a lot of teachers who had not encountered this during their training. And so I thought, if I'm going to do something in education, I don't really want to do work that's directed at the academy. I want to do work that's directed for teachers and administrators. And so that was how I got started. And then the big turning point for me was 2007, when I stopped doing basic research and learning and memory and started full-time writing for teachers and administrators. Yeah, I didn't realize your um, diving into education was that recent. I thought that your career had... Uh, spent more time there. I had not given a moment's thought to this before before 2000 or so. And it's so interesting because it is so tightly connected to what we're doing in terms of trying to help educators become better at teaching reading and teaching math and uh, the fact that, um, I mean, we could go on a, a total tangent about Um, you know, what's missing from teacher education programs in terms of preparing teachers to do all of the very things they need to do. Um, But maybe at a higher level, what are some of the um, elements of cognitive science that you think are really important for educators to know about? So I I think it's, uh, I'll I'll start off with a word of caution. One of the things that um, is very salient to me about cognitive psychology is that this is science that's conducted in the laboratory and the way you do science, I mean any science you try to control conditions so that you're in a better position to make strong conclusions about whatever it is you you are studying. Uh, and so that's why a lot of times the conditions in laboratories are very artificial. You, you know, you grow you grow things in a petri dish, which is a very artificial environment, so that you know exactly what the environment is. And that's what cognitive psychology studies are like, too. Classrooms are not controlled environments. Mm-hmm. And not so, at all. Right. Um, so there are lots, all the variables that we try to control in a study of learning, for example. We, we don't want motivation to be part of the picture. So we pay people to be sure that they're motivated. We don't want people to get bored, so we make the experiments relatively short and so forth. So we get these principles of learning that are very reliable and hold very well under the conditions that we've uh, set up in the laboratory. So that's the word of caution, and that's uh, a, a continuing theme throughout my work. And so the the principles that I tend to emphasize from cognitive psychology are ones that are so robust it seems like you observe them under all circumstances. They seem to be true uh, in the classroom, outside the classroom, doesn't matter what the subject matter is, doesn't matter um, whether you're dealing with younger children or older children, those are the principles that I'm especially interested in. So things like the fact that background knowledge is so important for problem solving. It doesn't seem to be very productive to characterize problem solving as a sort of general all-purpose skill. We get good at solving problems in specific domains where we know a lot of the about content the, of about the domain. The topic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, even something like thinking like a scientist, even when you get narrow like that, uh, I'm okay at thinking like a scientist when the science is cognitive psychology. When the science is clinical psychology, 
I'm not as good. You know, I can feel it. I'll, I'll go to talks given by colleagues that are on you know, schizophrenia or something like that. And I, you know, I more or less know what's going on. I can evaluate it a little bit probably better than the average person on the street who has no training, but I'm not as good as I am in cognitive psychology. And then when you get to chemistry, like I have no idea what's going on. Mm -hmm. right? Um, so that's one example of a principle that is, I think, very robust and, and you see across a lot of different situations. Yeah. So a lot of your writing has been really aimed at helping teachers sort of sift through um, everything that's out there. So talk a little bit about, because I think one of the things that we're hitting on is something that you hit on in when can you trust the experts. So there is a lot of research, and you just mentioned one thing, is that research is done as in really controlled situations, which may not be exactly like the classroom. What are some of the other things that teachers might need to be wary of or pay attention to as they are um, reading about new research or encountering um, new programs that claim to be research-based? What are the, some of the things that I think you've outlined in that book that they might need to think about? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's hard to know where to begin because there's the... the let, me, let me start from a slightly different perspective, that, which is, uh, ends up being sort of a depressing perspective. Uh, I think teachers need to be very wary because they're really unprotected and there's, not any, there's nothing set up to protect their interests in this. So uh, here's a way to think about it. This is t teaching is no different than many other professions in that there are researchers and then there are practitioners. Practitioners go to school. They should, uh, presumably they're trained in the latest methods uh, and then they go out into practice. Now they're out in practice doing their thing, executing what they've learned uh, during their training and then also learning by practical experience new things as well. But researchers are out doing their thing too. And so once you've been out five years or 10 years, you could, might easily think, well, you know, things may have changed. Maybe the researchers have learned something that I ought to know something about. Lots of professions have this characteristic. Medicine is the most mm -hmm. easiest to appreciate example. Dentistry has this, accountancy. I mean, there are lots of professions where there's ongoing research, uh, and then practitioners need some way to keep up. In every other profession that I know about, the profession has sort of gotten together and figured out a way to solve this problem. How do you keep practitioners up to date? Uh, so in medicine, for example, the American Medical Association is sort of so strong and powerful and have such a strong voice that you actually have commercial publishers who come up with yearly summaries of research, and they're, they're sort of afraid of crossing the AMA, and the summaries end up being really mm -hmm. good. So this is what physicians rely on. Physicians are not going home at night and reading the you know, hundreds of thousands of articles that can be found in, uh, in journals. They, they read these periodic compendia compiled by people whose job it is full-time job it is to keep up on the research and let them know, okay, the way we used to treat you know, strep throat was this, now the research indicates there's, there's a better way to do it. In education, there's nothing like that at all. Mm. And teachers and administrators are left completely to fend for themselves. They're not trained as researchers, uh, and yet they're expected to evaluate research. And the situation is just crazy. What you end up with is there's enormous financial incentives uh, for people who are developing products to say that they're research-based. And so you end up with uh, practitioners sort of using a mishmash of uh, intuition and sources that they trust from various places to try and figure out 
have things changed? Should I change what I'm doing? Is this new product reliable and so forth? And the people who've got a financial incentive are, of course, using anything they can think of to try to persuade uh, practitioners that the research base for this this new product that they're pitching is in place. So this is why every you know you hear the word research based until you want to scream. Yeah. Yeah, it does seem like some really helpful um, reports have come out recently. The one I'm thinking of most recently is the one that NCTQ just put out about six um, six teaching practices that work. I think you had some commentary on that. But I'm just wondering how those things get into the hands of teachers because I don't, um, from my perspective, see that they often are. And maybe you have some thoughts on whether it's because educators maybe lean a little more toward art than science sometimes in what they do. Like a doctor, it seems to me they're allowed to say, well, I've always done it this way and this is it works for my kids, so I'm going to keep treating strep throat this way. Mm-hmm. Whereas you do have teachers say, well, I've always done this practice. It seems to work for my kids. I'm going to keep doing it this way. Yeah, so there were, there were a couple of pieces in, in, in your question. One was how research good and bad gets into the hands of teachers. Um, and I think, yeah, there, there are people who are, are, are trying to be very serious about the research, are well-trained, are cautious. They also care about what happens in classrooms and are, are trying to be thoughtful about how what happens in the lab can dovetail with what happens in the classroom. And they're, they're competing in the marketplace of ideas like everyone else. Um, I think a lot of educators, when you don't have a reliable guide, a lot of times what you do is you use as your guide who said it. Mm-hmm. And so people who sort of have earmarks of uh, research training, I think, tend to have a little bit more credibility. I think in ways they frequently don't really deserve, honestly, uh, because uh, for reasons I can probably just <laughs> not go into. Um, there's a there, tangent we're not going to take. Yeah, there's a tangent. <laughs> I just I'd just like to leave that as a little cul-de-sac that we that we pass right by. So yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm I'm basically just agreeing with you that that, that yeah, this is a problem. Yeah, I don't think there's an easy answer. I don't think there yeah. is either, and I think that the um, what the teachers who are uh, I'll also mention that um, in medicine there are there are data showing that older doctors actually are kind of stuck in their ways too okay. this is not unique to education by any means um, I was actually just recently at a conference and I didn't see these primary data but somebody was giving a talk and saying that you're best off being treated by somebody who's about five years out of med school because they know pretty much the latest techniques but they've also got a decent amount of hands-on experience with patients, and there are too many doctors who've been in practice 25 years or so who are not doing enough to keep up. Um, and they're, the, the PD in medicine, everyone talks about how PD in education is an absolute train wreck. PD in medicine, they take it very seriously, but part of the problem is a lot of what you need to do in medicine is not just knowledge-based, it's skill-based. It's doing it. You yeah. need to do stuff, yeah, yeah. and that, that too much PD in medicine is, is just sort of lectures and, and uh, hearing about the latest techniques without having an opportunity to actually practice them. Yeah, and I think we get some of that in teaching, too. We are not very good about building the kind of practice in implementation of what the PD is about. I think that's right. And the, the, the final thing I wanted to say about... Uh, in, in response to your question was uh, regarding you said that there are a lot of teachers who feel like it's sort of an art and I've always done this and uh, you know in large measure I agree with that one of the things that I've really tried to emphasize about applying science to education is that the role of science is fairly limited someone mm-hmm. like me is never going to tell a teacher how to teach 
because right. we know we know some things about how kids learn, but there are lots of ways of um, I don't like the word exploit because it has a lot of bad, but that's basically what yeah. it is. Like we have these we have these uh, we have these principles of science that we want to exploit in the classroom. We want to be able to use effectively, and there are lots of ways of doing that. Um, so one of the things I've tried to do in my writing is to demarcate very clearly what science can do and what science can't do because I don't want to leave with the teachers with the impression that you know scientists are here to rescue you and tell you a better way to do it. I think we have a very small piece of the puzzle, but I do think it's like that you know what we know, I think we know pretty well. Mm -hmm. It's um and it, it can be interesting and informative to teachers, but it's far from the whole picture. Dan, let's talk for a few minutes about um, reading instruction and some of the things that we know from cognitive science with regard to what we can and can't tell teachers about um, what they might do from a, um, a scientific standpoint in the classroom to support reading. And in particular, I just want to frame for you the way that we, over the past week, have been working with these educators to talk about reading instruction. We've really been talking about three primary components to instruction in the elementary grades. Um, one is, of course, phonics instruction and decoding and working on word recognition. One is using content-rich, complex text to build knowledge and and provide exposure for students to texts that are at or above their current reading level as opposed to texts that are at their just right level. And then the third is something that Louisa Motes calls miles on the page, just lots and lots of opportunities to read. And I think you talked a little bit about that this morning when you're talking about reading is one of the ways that you build knowledge and having knowledge makes you a better reader. And so it's sort of this uh, chicken and egg Cycle feedback. Yeah, loop. yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, when we talk about reading, can you provide some background for how and why each of these things might be important from a cognitive perspective? Sure. Yeah, there was a lot there. So you're, yeah. So the first one is phonics and decoding. Yeah, I mean phonics and decoding. I think of this as uh, I mean there are two pieces to this. One is that if you look at what writing is, writing is a code for sound. That's mostly what it is. We have some logograms, but not that many. So we have like the you know logograms being a symbol that codes uh, the meaning of a concept on its own. So something like a dollar sign or an emoticon, like a smiley face or something. That's a symbol that codes meaning. Uh, but most of the symbols code sound, and so it you know that just logically it seems like it's gonna be straightforward that the way to teach kids to read is to break the sound code. Um, and so that's that's one argument for phonics instruction, but the other is you know this is the the um, area of reading instruction that has just been researched to death, um, mm -hmm. and uh, going back close to 100 years now. Um, and every 20 or 25 years, there seems to be a big fight about whether or the extent to which phonics instruction is really necessary and someone pulls the, all the research together and the conclusion is that it is necessary. So from a scientific perspective, is it, the most interesting question is not really the extent to which phonics instruction helps kids learn how to read, but why is it that this idea is, uh, doesn't take hold uh, and, and yeah. people... And uh, you know, I I'm not sure of what the answer is. I, mean, I think the answer is that if you're... First of all, it's, it's, a, it's a smaller effect than you would expect 
phonics instruction definitely helps, but it's certainly not the case. If you just look at two distributions, normal distributions of kids, think of bell-shaped curves. One bell-shaped curve of kids who have not received phonics instruction, the other bell-shaped curve of kids who have received phonics instruction with sort of where those curves lie being how well they read at sort of second grade or something, the curves mostly overlap. Yeah. And so the curve of the kids who've received phonics instruction is definitely ahead. Those kids are doing better. Um, but it's not as if kids who get very little phonics instruction 100% don't learn how to read. So I think that might be one contributor, is that if you're not keeping careful records, the, the difference is, is probably not going to be that obvious to you. But this, the, what, what's really important from a teacher's perspective is that it's the benefit of phonics is not uniform. So kids who have a lot of difficulty uh, hearing individual speech sounds with phonological awareness, those are the kids who really benefit from phonological awareness training and with um, phonics instruction. The kids, everybody knows some kid who's more or less seen to teach mm -hmm. themselves how to read. There are always a few of those around. And they sort of really encourage this idea, wow, we're like beating kids over the head with stuff that they would just learn on their own. It would be so much more fun for them and so forth. Those kids exist. I mean, I, you know, I believe the parents, I believe the teachers. You see those mm -hmm. kids. Those are the kids who uh, came into school already knowing the letters of the alphabet. They came in understanding print conventions. They understood the alphabetic principle. They knew what letters were for. Uh, and they came in with, for whatever reason, whether it's something about what their parents did or just because of who they are genetically, they had really good phonological awareness. And those kids learn learn how to read with much less support. So as far as I can tell, that's, that's the best explanation I can think of for why you would think phonics instruction isn't really that necessary. It's, it's not a huge effect, but crucially, for some kids, it is a huge effect. Yeah, and when we talk about it, we really talk about it um, in the context of things that you mentioned, which is deficits kids may have. If they have a phonological processing deficit, if they have a rapid naming deficit, if they haven't had exposure to books and conversations and vocabulary and language building things before they get to school, then perhaps the phonics can provide for them a little more structure that will provide them a net to move them along a little more quickly or a little more surely than trying to move them right into to reading without that background. And yeah. uh, absolutely. And the and the other thing that is to bear in mind that the, some of the criticisms of phonics instruction of in the past absolutely have merit. So Jean Charles' original report for the Carnegie Corporation in 1967 said Yes, absolutely, phonics instruction is better, but for goodness sakes, don't start giving kids tons and tons of phonics worksheets because they're, that's going to be really boring for them. And so there's this temptation to say, oh, well, once we know that they need phonics instruction to sort of really do that to death, and it, it absolutely can be boring. I think there are ways of making it a little more peppy and fun, but it absolutely yep. can be boring. Um, and, you know, the whole language people from the start have been absolutely right to emphasize the importance of children's literature and reading material that kids are going to find fun and interesting. And the data showing that that's beneficial to literacy instruction is just as strong as the data showing that phonics instruction yeah, is and so, helpful. Yeah, so I think one of the things that, that we try to communicate is striking that balance that's providing the support that all kids need. And I think 
one of the things I've heard you talk to in the past is this idea of practice beyond mastery. So thinking about phonics in the terms of teaching the phonics, but ensuring that the practice is in the whole of a text as opposed to the boring worksheets and the drill and kill kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And that um, opportunity to use texts that explicitly practice the phonics that are being taught as opposed to picking any text and maybe incidentally encountering some of the phonics that we're teaching, but often encountering, encountering phonics that we haven't taught yet. Right. So in other words, just being really planful about which exactly. texts. Exactly. Yeah, which texts. Are, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so the second component that, um, that we talk about is really complex text for the purpose of two things. One, building knowledge, whether it be through read-alouds in the earliest grades or through scaffolded shared reading and independent reading in the later grades, but this idea of using those complex texts to build vocabulary and knowledge at the same time that we're providing students opportunity to interact with a text that might provide, you know, a little bit of struggle mm -hmm. for them. Mm -hmm. I've written extensively, and of course, many other people have written uh, very much more eloquently than I have about the, the importance of vocabulary and background knowledge. Um, and the key thing for me to bear in mind that a lot of, it's hard to remember this about communication is that when people communicate, they leave a lot of information out. When writers write, there is a whole lot that is omitted because the writer is gambling or banking on the idea that the reader has this background knowledge. So I think in an earlier book I gave a, a simple example. Uh, imagine reading these two sentences. Um, I just got a new puppy. My landlord's really angry. If you read that, the writer has gambled that you know something about puppies, that you know what puppies tend to do, you know, that puppies pee on carpets, puppies chew stuff up, and so on, and that you also know some things about landlords. You know, landlords tend to be protective of their property, get angry if, if tenants mess things up. Um, so this, by not including that information about puppies and landlords, I mean, I think about my eight-year-old. My eight-year-old probably would not understand that text, you know, would just breeze right by it because she doesn't really know very much about puppies and she certainly doesn't know very much about landlords and what their perspective is. So writers are always omitting things that they figure the reader already knows that the writer does not need to spell out. And so, yeah, the, when, when we talk about our children Growing up to be good general readers, I think 90 times or 99 times out of 100, when I talk with parents and I ask the question, think about your child's reading capabilities. Like, what's your goal for them as they leave high school? What would you like them, how would you like to describe them as a reader? Almost always parents say, I want them to be a generally educated reader, like able to read complicated things that are out there for the general layperson. I want them to be able to pick up Scientific American magazine, for example, and read those articles or read the Sunday New York Times. The editors of the Sunday New York Times have in mind, as and, and the writers of the Sunday New York Times, have in mind what they think their audience knows, what needs to be explained and spelled out, and what doesn't. And so what parents are really saying when they say, I want my child to be this sort of general reader is they're saying, I want my child to know a whole lot of stuff. Um, and that's the kind of uh, uh, the, the, the kind of broad knowledge you need to read the Sunday New York Times. Kids are going to have to uh, learn either at school or at home or both. Yep. And so let's talk about the process of um, building that knowledge through text. One of the things that we also talk with educators about is staying on topic across a couple of texts. So rather than jumping from topic to topic, 
um, the value of staying on topic to build both the concepts of whatever the topic is, as well as the vocabulary, the repetition of the vocabulary that's related to that topic. Yeah, and I mean, this is a question that comes up a lot, and it's actually obvious uh, that it's a very practical question. Um, take vocabulary, because it's, it's really easier to define there than, uh, than with knowledge. How many times does a child need to see a vocabulary word? And you hear different estimates. I, I honestly don't know what the right answer is. And uh, as a psychologist, I would say a lot is going to depend on how often they need to see the word. A lot is going to depend on what they were thinking about at the moment they saw that word. There are times that one, you know, one incidence is going to be enough, and there are actually some studies showing that, that a child who sees a made-up word in a context, a week later you ask them, they can spell the word, they can tell you what the word means, and so on. And then there are other, other studies, and you know, every, we all have our own stories like this, yeah. like you know, how many times have I looked up the word egregious, because I just can't remember <laughs> what the darn word means, and I know I keep seeing it, and I should know what it means, right? So there's probably a lot of variability across kids and, and within kids, but... One thing we do know is that for the most part, yeah, it's going to take some repetition for, for things to stick. And the other aspect of this, and I'm sure you all are thinking about this, is that there's a motivational piece to it also. The feeling that if a child feels like there's not anything systematic about the curriculum, like you're sort of hopping from one thing to another thing, they, they may not be able to articulate it this way, but they can't help but feel like this is a little bit disjointed. Right. Like school is kind of like we do this and then, okay, we're not doing that anymore. Now we're doing this other thing. So if there's some systematicity to the way it builds, that's clearly going to help a lot with knowledge building. Um, and, uh, but I think also it's going to, I think it's just going to give kids a, a better experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the other things that we also think about is the um, the research around um, the role of context in vocabulary development. So learning the words in context mm-hmm. of whatever the topic is versus memorizing a list or learning the words um, independent of the context. I know that there there is a literature on this. I mean, I think there are data indicating they do learn words from vocabulary lists. That does happen. Is it richer when they learn it in context? Yeah, it probably is. You know, seeing it, and especially if you're seeing it in a variety of contexts. Um, I've always been, honestly, like too frightened, uh, too chicken to say like, nah, just eliminate the weekly vocabulary list. Because I, I think, I, in my view, the data are not strong enough to, to go there yet and say like, just be really planful, ensure they encounter the, uh, lots of rich vocabulary in context and you'll be good. Uh, maybe this is just like me thinking back to seventh grade. When I yeah, no, I think it's possibly another of those opportunities where we need to think about balance. Like one thing and one way of doing it is not necessarily sufficient. Right. So even though there is a body of research that demonstrates vocabulary development is more efficient in context, it's not the only way we learn vocabulary, and maybe it's not the best way. It Maybe it's a good way to learn vocabulary that is related specifically to the topic, that domain-specific mm-hmm. vocabulary, mm-hmm. but there are words that or are either more conceptual and not specifically related to the topic, or um, words that are rare that you're just not going to encounter enough that that we do need some direct instruction of vocabulary for that as well. Right. I don't think anybody would argue that. Right. Yeah. Clarify for me one thing, the difference between activating prior knowledge, if we're getting ready to interact with one of these knowledge-building texts or a series of knowledge-building texts, the difference between activating prior knowledge and building knowledge and um, what educators may need to think about. 
Yeah, so this was this came up what, uh, at a conference I was at just a week and a half ago or so, and and really surprised me that I said something about activating prior knowledge being unnecessary, and a teacher asked me about it afterwards, and it became clear that she and I meant very different things by activating prior knowledge. So the way psychologists talk about activating knowledge means it's something that you already know, and something happens in the environment to sort of make that knowledge more active, in other words, bring it to mind. Uh, so, for example, if I asked you what color is a polar bear, and you think to yourself polar bears are white, we would say, okay, so you had that knowledge in memory, but it was not active. Then I asked you about it, um, and that brought it to mind. So that knowledge is now in a more active state. And that's an important distinction for psychologists because you can do different things with knowledge when knowledge is active or inactive. And in fact, there's sort of a medium active state that I won't go into where there are other consequences for um, cognitive processes when knowledge is either inactive or sort of medium active or completely active where it would be conscious. So that's what we mean by activating prior knowledge. So the idea there would be do you need to activate prior knowledge to help reading? So, for example, if you're going to read a, um, uh, a text about the Arctic and about polar bears in particular, would it be helpful if before the child reads the passage about the Arctic, if you say, okay, this is going to be a passage about the Arctic, I want you to activate your knowledge about what you know about the Arctic. So the child is supposed to sort of think about the Arctic and what they know about the Arctic. Um, and this is what I meant by this is not going to help because you, you don't need sort of forewarning about what knowledge is going to be necessary. Mm -hmm. If the knowledge is in mind, it's going to sort of leap into, uh, into your mind at the right moment. As you're reading, you're going to um, remember that polar bears are white or whatever knowledge becomes appropriate. So that's, very, that's a very different sense than building knowledge. And if, if people thinking of activating knowledge as building knowledge, I can certainly live with that. Building mm -hmm. knowledge meaning learning new things that are now going to be residing in, in long-term memory. If you never knew the polar bears are white, lear learning that and then having that stored away so that you can use it at a future time. Great. So let's uh, talk about some things that, uh, some other things that cognitive science may um, tell us about what educators can do to work smarter. Are there other myths and misconceptions? I know we um, haven't talked too much about them, but I've seen in your writing in particular some ideas about some misconceptions in education, the idea of learning styles and um, so forth. There, are there others prevalent or things that you want to talk about that are other allied? Than, other, other than, than learning that, styles? Learning styles, yeah. What are other things that teachers should be aware of? That It's a, it's a great question. I mean, and the, the truth is I wish I knew. Um, there are not good data, sort of nationally representative data, on what teachers believe. So generalizing and saying teachers think this, when people say that, um, they're what they usually mean is, I've encountered some teachers who seem to believe this. Gotcha. I really don't know what teachers believe, yeah. for the most part. Uh, and again, and, and I said, when, when you asked about how I got into cognitive psychology, and I said, teachers I encountered hadn't seemed to have encountered this, this material before, but I certainly couldn't say teachers don't know, you know principles of learning that come from cognitive psychology. I have no idea what teachers know or don't know. Right. Right. So the books that you have written are really 
aimed fabulous? at. Fabulous? They yes, are they fabulous. Are. <laughs> yes, they are. Some of my favorites. I have copies of them all. Aren't you nice? Um, so um, let's just talk about those. I think I have the order. They were written correct. Uh, why don't students like school and what you can do about it? Mm-hmm. When can you trust the experts? Mm-hmm. And raising kids who read. Yes. Um, so talk a little bit about the progression from one to the other and whether you might be working on something new and how that might connect to what you've already written about. Yeah, the progression is is completely unplanned and it was it's I really sort of think what about what about going to do next? You know, what do I have any thoughts on what might be useful and that that's about it. Why don't students write school? Actually, I mentioned uh, Don Hirsch. The genesis of that book was a conversation with Don because I mentioned um, that Don was very taken with cognitive psychology and kept asking all these questions, and I kept trying to put the brakes on and say, you know, I don't, I don't think it, you know, I think what we have to say, as I said to you before, I think what we have to say is interesting for teachers, and I think it's important in a narrow sense, but don't get too excited. And Don wasn't really listening, and I finally said, Don, listen, everything teachers need to know about cognitive psychology, I could write on half a piece of paper. And he was sort of taken aback, and he said, I'd like to see that half piece of paper. That's done. <laughs> yeah. And so um, that became the nine principles of cognitive psychology I thought would be useful to teachers that were sort of the backbone of why don't students like school. As I was talking to teachers after that book came out, one of the things that frequently came up was how frustrated they were that everything gets pitched to them as being research-based. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, I started asking teachers, do you think it would be useful, suppose somebody could write a book that told someone who was not a researcher, gave them a sort of a cheat or a shortcut about how to evaluate research, would that be useful? Uh, and lots of teachers said, that's a fabulous idea, I would love to have a book like that. So that was the idea behind when can you trust the experts. Um, and then the reading book, I don't remember why I decided to write a reading book. Because you have young kids who are learning to read. I guess so. My kids certainly love to learn to read. I mean, my, my kids are, in, in a sense, terrible exemplars of this because they learn to read fairly easily. Uh, they loved reading from a young age. But it's also the case that my wife and I did most of what's in the book. Um, and so we mm-hmm. could, I'd love to say that's, that's the reason uh, I, don't, I don't have a control group. Um, but the, the funny thing about Raising Kids Who Read is the way the book was originally written was the first half of the book was the science of reading, and then the second half of the book was um, what to do with the science. And my publisher sent it to, I don't know, a dozen parents or something like that. And they said, well, we love the second half of the book where you told us what to do, mm-hmm. uh, but why did I have to go through all that science to get to it? And I realized that was a dumb way to organize the book. So I greatly reduced the amount of uh, scientific content about science of reading um, and then sprinkled and made it one chapter in the beginning and then sprinkled a little bit of it here and there. But that prompted me to uh, think that maybe I should write another book that's just about the science of reading for people who are actually interested in that. So that's what I'm working on now. Great. And I imagine that will be of interest mostly to pre-service teachers and maybe some in-service teachers. Great. And uh, ETA on that, or uh, I'm supposed to have the manuscript to them by the end of August or okay. beginning of August. Yeah, so I, I guess probably spring sometime. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. Let's end with just a couple more questions. Are there any positive changes that you've noticed in education in your uh, ten or so years working with uh, teachers that are 
um, tied to the kinds of cognitive science um, that you I, do? I hope so. And, and again, I'm, I'm reluctant to, to make a very firm judgment on this because it's just an impression. And I don't really have any objective way of knowing if this is true or not. I kind of feel like there is more interest in really getting to the bottom of research than there was when I first started. I feel, that, I feel that too, but I still feel it takes such a long time. If you think about the research people are, like the, um, the one that I'm thinking of right now is the, the Hart and Risley research around vocabulary and the yes. 30 million word gap. I mean, that is something that, that I feel gen, general educators, in my, in my experience, are just in recent years aware of and able to talk about that idea but the research was released in the early 90s, so right. it takes so long for that research to get to the point where it's sort of that more common knowledge among the the practitioners. It does, but I mean, uh, on Hart and Risley in particular, um, you know, if I if I had been around, I think that book came out in 95, I would not have said, okay, now we, we know, uh, you know, X, Y, or Z. It was one study of fewer than mm-hmm. 100 people, right? So mm-hmm. you want to, you don't want to go charging off as soon as a, a study that seems pretty cool and seems well done, not just cool, but seems like it's a, it's a you know, a solid study. You don't want to go charging off and changing everything you do. Conservatism actually makes a lot of sense when it comes to practice, right? right? You really want to be sure something is right before you let it influence your practice. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the heart and wristly, that finding in general has been replicated a lot. And I agree, if, uh, I don't know why it's suddenly penetrated more than it, than it had, but um, it seems to be. Part of the problem, I think, I mean, I think researchers really are partly to blame for this. I mean, there are not, part of the reason I decided to do what I'm doing, and I mentioned earlier, I decided I was not going to write for academics. I was going to write for educators. There are not very many people doing that. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of researchers who will write here and there for the practitioners, but there are not many people who are trying to really do it in a systematic way and certainly not doing it full time. So, you know, we can't then be surprised that practitioners are not picking up what we're putting down. You know, you gotta you got to go to the people who are very busy and have got jobs and lives to get on with and let them know, you know, how what you're doing can be useful to them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right, let's close with uh, one last question. And um, given what you've said, this may be a question. What would I say to St. Peter at the Pearly Gates? Yeah, no, 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 no. (laughs) This is the the question that we call the magic wand question. And we've been asking um, guests that we've had doing podcasts all week this question. If you could wave a magic wand and convince every um, educator at the primary level um, to make one change in their instructional practice... What might that be? And I suspect because you're a scientist, you might not. Well, let me just let you answer first. And yeah, then um, I, I, you didn't finish, but uh, you're you're right that I'm 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 not going to wave the magic wand. I would I would not have the nerve to say anything that we know is important enough that it would blanket apply to every teacher's practice in every yeah. classroom. I think that's a a dangerous idea and so instead what I mostly try and do is say here's what we know about how kids learn or think or whatever it is here's what I think it might mean for the classroom here's some thoughts on ways it might get integrated and I let the teachers take it from there yeah thank you Dan very much my pleasure